Well, they say these overnight success stories sure take a long time. So when I, after five years, got rid of the wrong people and I started to rebuild, again, it took me eight years to get to just a million in revenue. That's a long time. It was slow and steady trying to figure out the game of business. What works in my business? What's the business model? And it was just slow and steady. And then once we started to get the Paul guy, the first franchise in Toronto, it was a few years before we had the next one. This wasn't just some rocket ship going straight to the moon. This was, it took time. But once you figure out the model, then you can scale and go nuts. Yeah, it's just being open to learning. You know, Dan mentioned my first book, WTF, Willing to Fail. We embrace making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you can admit them. As long as you can take accountability and say, hey, I messed up here. Here's what I learned. Here's what I'll do differently. Here's what we could have done differently. Mistakes are okay. Just don't repeat them. Don't make the same mistake again and use it as a leverage point to help you build a better business than you've got today. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership, allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest. Really excited to have him on. You've probably seen their trucks all over the country, Canada, the US, but without even getting into his background. I mean, he's just one of the great success stories within franchising. A little bit of a hero of mine, hero of many, many people within franchising, I would say. Brian, really excited to have you on. I'll let you give a little bit of background as far as what company you're with, companies and the overall structure. But I think I want to let you reveal the surprise about kind of who you are and what organization you built and we can take it from there. Yeah, well, I'm honored for the buildup. Thank you. And if you're going to make me do my own intro, then uh, here we go. I'm Brian Scudamore. I'm the founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And we have a parent company known as O2E Brands, which stands for Ordinary to Exceptional. Everything we've done, making the ordinary business a junk removal exceptional with 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we've gone on to parlay that into a couple of other brands. Home services, of course. Wow, One Day Painting, where we paint people's homes in a day. And Shackshine, windows, gutters, power washing, and Christmas lights. So three awesome service brands, all under one umbrella of O2E. And what motivates me in life more than anything in the world is taking care of people, finding the right people, treating them right. And I'm sure we'll end up talking about that today. No doubt. I mean, I think a great place to start, and I'm sure you've told the story a million and one times, but how did you get into the junk removal business? Why that? And then how did things kind of progress from there? Can you give us some background? Yeah, the first business, 22 years of running 1-800-GOT-JUNK before we discovered the second. But how the first one started, I was in a McDonald's drive through in Vancouver, strange place to get business inspiration for the junk removal business. But in front of me in that drive through while I'm waiting for my cheeseburger, is this beat up old pickup truck in front of me. It had plywood sides. It said Mark's hauling on the side. And I looked at this truck full of junk and I'm like, that's my ticket. That's my way to pay for college. I went and bought a pickup truck of my own. And within a couple of weeks, I had a business that paid for itself. And started to fund my college education. But three years into college, I realized I was learning way more about business, running a business, more than I was studying in school. And I made a 
bold decision to drop out. My dad's a liver transplant surgeon and thought I was crazy to leave school to become a full-time junk man, but I did it and no looking back. I love that. It reminds me a little bit of rich dad, poor dad. You know, you have your educated father. And that's what I came up growing up knowing as well. Hey, you go to school, you get a good job, and then you're going to live your best life ever. And I think most of us that have gotten into franchising have realized, well, hey, there's another route. It's not for everybody, but building a business for those that it is the right fit for is just an amazing avenue. So Mm -hmm. can you walk us through a little bit about what those early days were like? I mean, obviously today it's this behemoth of a brand. It's everywhere. I saw a 1-800-GOT junk truck driving around my town yesterday in Santa Clarita, California. But what were some of those early days like? Oh yeah, the early days were a grind, but in a fun, exciting way. I mean, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was working every single second I could, partially because I had to, partially because I was obsessed with it and loved doing what I'm doing. You know, Dan's got that mug that I think says, do what you love. I was doing what I love and it wasn't junk removal, baby. It was like just running a business, growing people, new marketing. I was having a blast. It's interesting to compare and contrast where we are today, just to give you a size of one business. 1-800-GOT-JUNK is $600 million in system-wide revenue. In the first eight years, it took me eight years to get to a million in revenue. Today, 1-800-GOT-JUNK did a million dollars this morning. So it's like, wow, it took so long. And then boom, this momentum. And the early days were just figuring out the model. What were we doing? What did customers want? We started doing all sorts of other home services. We were doing moving with some of our junk trucks. We were doing topsoil delivery. We were doing anything that you could do with a truck, trying to diversify ourselves and make more money. But what customers really wanted was you guys are the best junk removal company on the planet. Just do that one thing. And we scaled that through franchising. I took a gentleman, Paul Guy, one of my closest friends in the world today, He and I were running 1-800-GOT-JUNK in Vancouver together. He was my operations manager. And he had a girlfriend in Toronto on the other side of the country. And I said, you're spending so much time back and forth between Toronto. Why don't you just take the first 1-800-GOT-JUNK franchise? Let's create one for you to start in Toronto and go build a business. And it's exactly what he did. He drove a truck from Vancouver to Toronto, 3,500 miles or something ridiculous. And he's built a $100 million business today with franchises in the United States, Canada, and Australia. You know, it's interesting, as an entrepreneur, you think about if you love what you're doing, I equate it to the guy that doesn't leave his house that plays video games. You know, like that, maybe a kid that weekends, they can't sleep, they just keep playing video games. Like, that's how I feel when I sit at my computer with a cup of coffee, talking to my team. But it's all about the people, as your hat says, and you want to play the video game with people you enjoy. You don't want to play the game with who you don't. So... I was curious, one of the things in your book, Willing to Fail, talks about is you at one point, I think, let maybe your whole team go or like a good amount. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about like, it's all about people, like how do you decide that and what was that experience like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got a lot of hats that I wear literally, but this one that I'm wearing today says it's all about people. I discovered five years into my business, 1994, I had, they say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I had nine, I think, bad apples of the 11 people. Now, not bad people, but they just were not the right fit for me. They were negative in their way of dealing with other people and with customers. So of my team of 11, I decided, you know what? The only option here is to rip the Band-Aid off and fire everybody. I got rid of 11 people 
all in one fell swoop. And I said, um, this is the day I learned a tough lesson. It's all about people, finding the right people and treating them right. What I said to my team when I fired them was, I'm sorry. Two words of strong accountability because it was my leadership or lack of it in bringing them on board and how I treated them. I started hiding in my private office. Today, we don't have private offices. I hid in my private office and I didn't interact with them because I didn't enjoy it and I didn't know how to treat them. So it was a perfect leadership lesson for me to learn, get all the wrong people out, start fresh. And today we hire people with a methodology we call the beer and barbecue test. Would you have a beer with a person? You know, if I was in California or with you, Dan, in New York, we'd have fun having a beer together. We've got some similar work ethic and energy and enthusiasm for life. It's when you interview someone, would you have a beer with them? Do you find them interesting, interested, shared common passion, similar way of being? That's how we hire people. And the barbecue test is how would they fit at a company barbecue or a company picnic? Do they just gel? We're not looking for everyone to be exactly the same. We want lots of diversity. We want introverts, extroverts, the whole bit. But does it just somehow fit? And is there a magic there? And that's worked for us. We've got 700 people between our two head offices. And people walk through our office and they're like, what are you guys smoking? Why are people smiling all the time? What's the deal? It's just we find good people that like to work together, that love what they do. Well, it sounds like the first thing you're looking at when you bring on a new hire then and now is you're looking for culture and values alignment first and, and personality. And then it sounds mm-hmm. like skills is almost secondary or, or am I understanding that incorrectly? Can you give some insight there? Yeah, so we hire an attitude, train on skill is kind of the philosophy. Now, hey, let's, let's be clear. If we're looking for a CFO, you're not going to train on skill, right? You, you want someone to have their credentials and so on. But still, the most important part of that equation is do they have the attitude? Are they entrepreneurial? Do they love taking care of people? Are they a team builder? Do they like having fun? They take the business seriously, but not themselves. Like it is, it's about value and fit more than anything. You can walk into any great company in America, Canada, it doesn't matter. And you can see that companies are different. You can walk into Starbucks head office, Google's head office, Facebook. They're all different and unique based on their set of values and how carefully they have sort of stuck to a principle of the type of people they want to be a part of their family. And so we find people that that don't take themselves too seriously that want to have fun while they're working. Because to me, that's part of the equation of loving what you do. And those are the best people to be around anyway. I find that the people that take themselves too seriously are the people that either have too big of an ego or too too many insecurities. Or really, I think the ego is a function of big and large insecurity. So I completely agree with that, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. So then going back to the story of, you know, you just laid everybody off, you're rebuilding your company at that point. How did you get from basically starting all over to then growing it and continuing to grow it and bringing on some incredible people, bringing on tons of new franchisees and really killing it? Well, they say these overnight success stories sure take a long time. So when I, after five years, got rid of the wrong people and I started to rebuild, again, it took me eight years to get to just a million in revenue. That's a long time. It was slow and steady trying to figure out the game of business. What works in my business? What's the business model? And it was just slow and steady. And then once we started to get the Paul guy, the first franchise in Toronto, it was a few years before we had the next one. 
this wasn't just some rocket ship going straight to the moon. This was, it took time. But once you figure out the model, then you can scale and go nuts. Yeah, it's just being open to learning. You know, Dan mentioned my first book, WTF, Willing to Fail. We embrace making mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you can admit them. As long as you can take accountability and say, hey, I messed up here. Here's what I learned. Here's what I'll do differently. Here's what we could have done differently. Mistakes are okay. Just don't repeat them. Don't make the same mistake again and use it as a leverage point to help you build a better business than you've got today. Love it. So getting on this podcast today, last night we were messaging with someone on your team and you know about preparing. We said, let's not prepare. We want to get as authentic as possible. And I'm sure you've been on hundreds of podcasts at this point in your life. So I want to get on here and try to like, throw out some questions that you don't always answer, you know, like they're unique. And so mm. my first one that I had for you, Brian, was you have to be the candid as you could be. What do you hate about business? Like if you said like, there's the one thing about business, not your business, but just business in general. Yeah. And I have one too. Yeah. I mean, a current one on my mind is when you do have the wrong person, even if they're doing some really good stuff in your business, but they're just the wrong cultural fit and having to get them out of your business as a franchise owner, it's even harder. But I just, it's frustrating when it doesn't work out. You think you've been careful, but you can't pick winners 100% of the time. And having to have those tough conversations with people to say, you know, again, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work out. They might be upset with you. They might, you know, not agree and understand, but it's still something I don't like. Is there anything in franchising you think is done wrong or needs to be corrected? Or is there any kind of disruption you feel is necessary within the way that franchises are sold or amongst the franchisor community? Any thoughts to share there? Yeah, I feel like most franchisors try and grow too quickly and they ultimately have to scale back at some point. So we'll see through different franchise brokers a brand that's just taken off. And my team will say like, look at this brand, look what they're doing, it's going nuts. And then you know, a year or two later, they'll be like, oh yeah, they just lost a bunch of people. So franchising to me is a slow and steady wins the race game. Again, we've made plenty of mistakes. We try not to repeat them. Sometimes we do. But it is just, it's got to be a very controlled growth. Because at the end of the day, if your franchise partners don't succeed, you fail big time. I mean, they say, what, 95% of businesses fail within the first five years? Imagine a franchisor and how many of them actually fail within the first five years because of how quickly they've tried to grow. I mean, we've always said, and I know it's a bit of a cliche in franchising that you know we don't sell franchises, we award them. We are so careful in our selection process that at the end of the day, people are like, man, this is like harder to get into than Harvard. Like this is tough. But they appreciate that we've really looked for a great fit. And you hope that you don't have a situation where you've got a wrong fit, but that can happen sometimes. You know, it's interesting, like, especially right now with so much private equity in franchising, you see people just running, nothing wrong with selling your business, of course, but running toward this goal of, of selling their business or not even having a business and trying to sell it. And yeah. I was always taught, build your business, like build to sell, build it with the end in mind. But there's no reason to rush building a great franchise because the best part about a franchise is because of how consistent it can be it can run pretty stress-free, not stress-free, but run consistently. You know, like I went through this, when I sold my business, I thought it was money motivated. My whole life, I thought I was money motivated. And then, you know, not that I sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, but as soon as it happened, 
I woke up, I kid you not, it was a Friday that like the money came in on Saturday. I was like depressed. I couldn't get out of bed mm. because I realized that I had no purpose now. And it's interesting because if you ask me what I hate about business, it's actually this double-edged sword that we love it so much that I find the balance of my life sometimes gets challenging because sure. I'm addicted to the business. But yeah, it's interesting because like right now we see so many people rushing toward this like finish line when there really is no finish line. Yeah. This might be a strong statement, but I bet you more than half those people within a few years are going to be miserable and regretting that they sold. You know, people often say to me, Brian, how come you always say you'll never sell? Well, it isn't about never. It's about, I love what I'm doing so much that I don't want to lose my purpose and my passion. I've got a great team, the best I could ever imagine. I'm so grateful. We're having so much fun and it's working. Why would I want to start again? And I've been fortunate enough to have some relationships and friendships with some people that have built $100 million businesses or billion-dollar businesses and sold them. And I've watched how they felt. It's crazy. But they just can't get the magic back. And you try and find something to fill that void. So we get competitors getting swallowed up by private equity. And my team comes and they go, oh, did you just hear about this acquisition? And I'm like, that's good news for us. The odds are against them that they'll be extra successful now that they've got private equity money because they've got someone with a different motivation. They might suck the soul out of the brand. They might do it differently. Now, of course, there's private equity deals that turn into big, big success stories. I'm not knocking private equity, but there's so many of them that blow up and the founder buys it back at a discount and tries to rebuild it. And so you're right. People shouldn't rush. And think really carefully about when you're selling and what your motivation is for actually selling. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. It's interesting too, because you can bring on a tremendous person to take on a lot of the day-to-day that you maybe can't handle, don't want to handle anymore, but doesn't have to end it. Yeah leaving completely. It doesn't have to be all that decision, you know? Yeah, I mean, private equity puts in a team to run the business. Why not bring in a team to run the business and continue to take a great income if you've got a profitable, well-oiled machine? You don't have to just sell and get out. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's important for franchise candidates to hear as well. I mean, you want to know what the intentions are of your franchisor before you get into the business. What is their motivation? Are they here to just run you 100 units, sprint to 100 units and sell to private equity? Or are they in it for the long haul? What is their motivation? I think that's an important question for candidates to ask, for sure. I'm sure, because I can only imagine as a franchisee in a system that was just sold to private equity, they're in for a big surprise and change in culture. And again, it could be for the better, but you don't know. And there's that period of uncertainty of what is actually going to happen here. It's scary. I'm interjecting, but I'm laughing because before we recorded this, I joked around that anytime we have, like, I guess we're so excited to have problems happen. I'm in my office today and there's like a tour going on and they decided to have their meeting right outside my door. So thankfully they just left though. That's good, man. (laughs) Keeps it real. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're live, man. So Brian, if I'm not mistaken, you're a pretty big fan of the traction model EOS, right? I'm a big fan of EO in general, Mm -hmm. the entrepreneur organization, and some of the different people that have come out of there, like Gina Wickham with Traction, Vern Harnish with Gazelles, 
like there's a whole bunch of different models. And I think we at O2E Brands have taken little bits and pieces of the models and done it our own way. But I think the most important thing for a franchise owner or even a franchisor is just come up with a structure. Make sure you've got a vision. Make sure you're hiring the right people. Make sure you have well-oiled systems to run the machine. And there's lots of good ones out there for sure. Got it. I wanted to get your thoughts on the whole visionary versus integrator dynamic. I mean, do you put a lot of uh, weight behind that idea? Yeah, I'm 100% the visionary and Eric Church, our president, is 100% the implementer. And we've been working 11 years now together. Great friends, love what we do together. And it's because we are so focused on our own position, but making sure we're connecting the two. It's, it's a little bit like a yin and a yang. You know, you've got the visionary and the implementer, but they still have to fit together perfectly. And so Rocket Fuel, the book that talks about visionary and implementer. I remember someone gave us the book once and said, you guys are doing this. And we start flicking through the book and we're like, yeah, we are. And don't know where it came from, but we did this sort of organically, intuitively, and it's worked for us. And one of my favorite moments in sort of the visionary implementer journey for Eric and I was understanding there was one time where we kind of disagreed on a big decision We were trying to get rid of a brand that we had, You Move Me, the moving business. Just wasn't the right fit. And we disagreed with one person wanted to keep it, one person didn't. And in going back to that book, someone reminded me, Ty goes to the implementer. So even though I was the founder, the majority shareholder, all that kind of stuff, I had to let my ego go, ah, Ty does go to the implementer because they're the one actually doing all the hard work on this. And so I said, you know what, Eric? You get to decide here, and I'm totally good with that. And uh, so the visionary implementer thing is, is a, it's smart. Those guys nailed that book. I love that book. The only thing I don't like about visionary implementer is the name implementer. Because visionary is such a, like, se- I'm a visionary. It's sexy. Like, oh, he's a visionary. And then it minimalizes, at least the name, I feel like. I feel like they need a better name for implementer. It's got to be, like, put at the same equalness of importance. Mm. I don't know. I've always felt that way. And that kind of brings me to my question, which is, as the visionary in your organization, like obviously you talk to lots of teammates, but you got a lot of people. Mm. So you don't step on the toes of your rest of your team. Like, How many key people are you speaking with typically, you think, like on a daily, weekly basis? Well, I mean, Eric has a team of about 14 people on the leadership team. I participate on that team but it's the implementer's team. So I'm not, you know, directing anybody. I'm sharing ideas and cheerleading and all that sort of stuff, but I don't really have a a, a team that's my own. Yeah, you know, I'm going to ask you a question for a second, Dan. Are you the visionary or the implementer? So I took the test and I actually have more of an implementer ability than you would think because I know I'm moving around a million miles an hour most people think of that of me, but I definitely 1000% the visionary. And it's interesting what you just said, because in in our new company, I said to our COO that his teammates should be picked by him, not me, because they work Mm. with him. And then Mm. their teammates, like the CMOs hire, should be picked by the CMO, not Mm. the COO, right? So like, it's an interesting dynamic, but letting go of the hiring is... Definitely not easy, but important. 
in my opinion. Yeah, well, the reason I asked is when you said, ah, the only thing you don't like is the naming. But I think that's because you're the visionary, right? I mean, the implementer, as far as I know from implementers I've spoken with, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, I love implementing. I love being the, putting it all together. What's the vision? Okay, let's make the magic happen. And so, yeah, maybe there needs to be a better name. I don't know, but it's interesting because Eric and I both seem to identify with our portions because that's what we love. Yeah, maybe the implementer is the type of person that doesn't care as much about the name. Right? It's a good topic. And I think it's funny because I love being a missionary so much so that I wonder if the people that are not in that seat are like wanting to do that. And they actually would prefer, they hate that job. They don't want to do that. Totally. And they're like, you go do that. 100%. You know, I mean, if I look at Eric, like the guy blows my mind. He's so good at everything he does. He doesn't want to do the things I'm doing. You know, it's just, it's very different roles. And if you can carve it out perfectly, like what I did is I took a sheet of paper, I drew a line down the middle. And on one side, I said, what are all the things a business needs that I'm good at, that I love to do? What is the business need that I'm bad at and I don't like to do? And I need to find someone to do all those things. And so when I interviewed and searched, I found Eric, who is great at and loves all the things I'm bad at. And so every visionary and implementer, they're going to have different things that they're clearly good at and bad at and don't like. But if you can find that perfect yin and yang, it's unbelievable the result you can have. I mean, Eric and I don't disagree on things. Even our one disagreement was very much, uh, you know, like it was, we were a little stuck more than anything. But we get along so well, we work so well together, we listen to each other, we challenge each other because we're in our respective sort of areas of unique ability. I love that. And it comes across to me as like the visionary type of person that would do something as simple as, but as profound as just on a yellow pad or a napkin even and just writing out things I'm good at that I want to do, things I'm not good at that I don't want to do and and just delegating everything you don't want to do. I think that that's awesome. I think that's really... Again, simple yet profound. And I'm definitely, I align more with the visionary type of person. But you did mention some of those things that you do like doing and that you are good at. And obviously, again, this is different than when you first started out. But on a daily basis now, I mean, what does that look like? What are you doing as a visionary, as the key driver of the business day in and day out? Yeah, you know, trying to open up doors to opportunities, trying to lend support to the team in areas where I think I can help. If it's we're stuck in an area, I can share some experience from the past. A lot of PR and driving the business forward that way. Something I don't love doing at all. And it's not that I'm bad at it, but I just don't enjoy it as hiring. So I'm not involved in hiring very often. But when we've got some senior roles, I am involved. And part of the reason why I hate it is I'm so ADD I make up my mind in like five minutes. I'm like, yeah, this person's great. But like, that's not the way to interview, right? You need to take more time. You need to be patient. You need to have some rigor to it. And so I make my mind up and it doesn't mean I'm right. I've been wrong plenty of times, but I don't have the patience for interviews. So it's knowing that I'm not the best person to be the interviewer and finding people that are great at that. Since it's been at this large size organization, has there been a Brian Scooter or on-the-spot executive hire, or you stay out of it enough that never happens? That's a great question. I mean, I stay out of it enough that that doesn't happen, but yeah, I don't think there's been one. And Eric, I took a long time with, like I'd learned my lesson and I'm like, I'm going to find that perfect yin and yang. 
and spent, you know, year and a half looking and thinking and finding. So yeah, I stay away from it. I'll recommend someone and I'll say, oh, we should talk to this person, look at this person. But I also have to accept that I'm not the implementer. And if it doesn't go where I think it should go, it's like, okay, I can ask some questions, but I got to let it go. I've also seen hires come in that aren't the right hires. And I'm like, eh, I think we're going to hear from someone pretty soon that that wasn't a good decision. And yes, I'll speak up. I'm not one to say I told you so, but I still have to let the team make their decisions and give them all my reasons why I think something, you know, we need to be cautious. But I'll still say it's still your call. And I mean it. Did you always have that level of self-awareness where you knew, hey, here's what I'm not good at? Or how did you develop that skill? Well, I'm 52. So I'd say that just years of living and running a business, 34 years, I've learned. But no, I thought I knew best all the time. And I started to realize one of the earliest days was PR, pitching the press, landing stories. That was a gift of mine. I realized, though, I couldn't scale that. We brought in someone else, Tyler Wright who became our first big PR hire. He had zero PR experience, didn't know where it was going to go. He was way better than I was. He could pick up the phone and smile and dial all day long and take rejection and figure out how to land the story. And it happened. I couldn't have stuck with it in the way. So when we got on the Oprah Winfrey show, he made it happen. It took months and months and months of him hammering Harpo Studios to try and get on the show. And it happened. I couldn't have pushed that hard on the same task. So you start to realize, you're like, okay, maybe I'm not the best at this, this, this. I mean, I'm not really the best at many things anymore. I might be best at being the founder, but I'm also the only guy who's the founder. No one could ever sort of take that away, right? No competition. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Well, in the few minutes we have left still, I want to talk about some of the other brands that you brought on into the O2E family. And specifically, I guess we could start off with Wow One Day, because I think that was the second one since 1-800-GOT-JUNK, right? Why painting? I think a lot of people, they think painting, isn't it saturated? Aren't there a million painters out there? And it's not sexy. It's yeah. this, it's that. And there's a lot of preconceived notions. So why painting? What was the story behind that? Yeah, you know, painting is definitely a saturated business. While we're first perceived that way, while we're a first mover advantage of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, you know, we built the industry, the biggest players in the painting space. I look at them and I go, they're doing hundreds of millions of dollars, sort of pro painters as an example. Imagine when our model catches up, like that's pure potential because I believe we're doing it in a better way. So why painting? I saw a better way. And that was me looking for someone to paint my home years ago, ask some friends, who do you know? I get a bunch of names, Facebook, whatever. I call people, three people come to my house. And the first two are painting estimators that, you know, smelt like cigarette smoke, showed up late, felt like they were going to move in and paint my home for two weeks like Murphy Brown. I found this third guy, Jim, who'd created a company called One Day Painting. And he was professional, clean cut, on time, a little early, shiny van, the whole deal. He goes, listen, paint your house in same price, same quality as anyone else. Done this for 22 years. I know what I'm doing. The kicker, what got me excited was that he said, when we agree on painting day, we'll paint your house in a day. We'll choose the day. You'll come home in the afternoon, early evening, boom, done. And I did that. And floor to ceiling, moldings, trim, it was immaculate. And I was like, I didn't even know how you did this. But if you looked at franchising your business, and he said, yeah, it'll never work in this space. And I said, let's go for a beer and talk about that. And we partnered, then ultimately bought him out. And here we are today. We're a $50 million brand. So we're just getting going. 
the potential in the space is huge. I wholeheartedly believe that this company can be bigger than 1-800-GOT-JUNK because the sheer size and volume of the amount of painting that's done in the world versus, you know, hauling away junk, it's huge. So it got me excited and still gets me excited. It's a brand that people are loving. And now it's just, how do we scale it? How do we find more amazing franchise owners that can go, yeah, I can make lots of money, grow something special here. Yeah, I think it has that it factor in my mind as a franchise consultant. It has a good key differentiator. Not every painting brand is leading with, hey, we can get it done in a day. But not only can we get it done in a day, we're going to get it done right in a day. Right. And the branding behind it, you guys have marketing support, call center. I mean, everything is just so dialed in. It's very impressive. Yeah, thank you. And you know, I think the initial thing that we faced as a set of obstacles was people in the painting industry said, you can't paint a home in a day. Well, no, your little small painting company can't paint a home in a day. But when we have coordinated project management and enough people, it's simple. When you think about it, Christian, it's everyone knows one person can paint a room in a day. If you want to paint a big room, you might need two people. Great. You got a big room, two people. They're not bumping into each other. They're just focused on that all day. You just put the number of people in the rooms and it's all done at the same time. So there's no compromise in quality. This is very much a business that someone has to come into and go, okay, I can find and lead the right people who can build out these crews, who can execute. And when they figure it out, it's an unbelievable business. You've McDonald's dies painting. Very systematic. Yeah, exactly. All right, last question. And I think it's another one you haven't been asked because we're so new into the year. What's the plan? 2023, what's the major big goal you want for the future? Yeah, you know, biggest goal, the biggest thing on my mind personally as a CEO is storytelling. Right now, like this is the year of storytelling for us and our business. I think we're in the age of storytelling. Like look at social media, look at what you guys are doing with your podcast. All the world really does is you grow brands and people through storytelling. I believe that in the day where we used to get the Oprah Winfrey's and the Ellen DeGeneres's, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, like we were getting out there telling stories. The medium has changed. It's a lot more social media. It's a lot more people in our business teaching them to tell their own stories that will stand out and rising tide floats all boats, right? If we can get all of our people telling their amazing stories and connecting, that's what gets customers excited, franchise owners excited. And there's a lot of magic in all of our brands. My focus is to inspire how do we tell great stories? You look at the newspapers, you look at the radio, you look at anything today where they're telling stories. There are more storytellers out there. We're all storytellers with social media but teaching people how to tell stories, what makes a story, and really starting to own the airwaves, if you will. It's great advice. Some of the best advice I've gotten recently is, Christian, you need to build in 2023 and beyond, you need to really build your personal brand on social media and elsewhere, and then eventually with your companies. That is the medium that you need to use and take advantage of and teach other people how to do the same with. So I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, we're in an interesting world where a personal brand, I mean, personal branding's always existed. It might have been, hey, Christian, you're grabbing a beer with someone, you know, in your city who is in a same industry and you get to know each other. But we can do that much more efficiently and faster now with social media. But it's got to be authentic. You know, in the same way you'd sit and have a beer with someone, how do you have an authentic interaction on social media? 
there's too many people these days just showing the look at me on vacation. I'm so happy. And then once the camera's off, they're, you know, not having a good time. So how do we make it authentic and real? I think we're an amazing, unique place in the world right now where everybody can tell the story they want, tell the right story that people care about, and tell the story in an authentic way that people will connect with and believe it and want to do business with you, want to partner with you, want to work with you, whatever the case might be. I think that's solid advice. And Dan, unless you have anything else, man, I think that's a good place to leave it. Brian, super awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for the time. I know our audience got a tremendous amount of value out of it. So really appreciate you coming on. And everyone, if you haven't already, go check out 1-800-GOD-JUNK. Check out Wow One Day Painting and the other brand Shack Shine, which we didn't get to touch on, but all phenomenal businesses, all worth checking out. And O2E Brands, they're doing something really special within franchising. So thanks for coming on, Brian. Christian, Dan, pleasure to meet you guys. Hope one day we can connect in person for a beer. And if you're ever in Vancouver, come say hello. Sounds fantastic. We'll take you up on that. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com. 